Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the latest on foreign interference with Charles Burton, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. What if an opposition party fixated on unseating Premier Doug Ford's progressive conservative party held a leadership race and people were actually interested? It actually seems to be happening. And we cover all things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington report. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The concern about foreign interference is still real. Uh, the Prime Minister has not talked much in the last couple of weeks, of course, about uh, whether or not there's going to be an inquiry. Uh, but that hasn't stopped authorities from looking into what's going on. Concerns about foreign interference in Canada have recently focused on efforts to disrupt elections, but there's a lot more to it than that. John Kennedy has details. But the federal government also routinely deports people suspected of espionage or terrorism, and sometimes bars them from entering the country. Lawyers who work in the immigration system fear security officials may now ramp up those efforts. Lawyer Sherry Aiken says immigration laws are vague and sometimes people are victims of injustice. Plus, some are sent away on the basis of secret evidence that can't be reviewed, she says. One former Canadian citizen was denied permanent residency and deemed inadmissible on the basis that he allegedly taught English to Chinese spies. John Kennedy the Canadian press. So the issue is not going away, uh, notwithstanding the fact that our politicians don't seem to be talking a whole lot about it. Uh, but we still have to have that conversation, uh, especially in light of the fact that there seems to be a, a very disturbing trend developing here where Canadian politicians who have criticized the Chinese government become its targets. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Charles Burton. Uh, Dr. Burton is a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Dr. Burton, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Good to speak with you again. Let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, what is happening here and the concern uh, about what's going on. And, and I want to focus specifically, at least in the first part of our conversation, about how they seem to be targeting uh, those who speak out against them. Michael Chong, of course, comes to mind, but there have been others, too, where they have been vocal in their opposition to uh, human rights violations in China, etc. And uh, th there seems to be a, a rather change or concerning pattern here where people within the Chinese community seem to be turning on these politicians. Where Where is that coming from? Well, I, I, I think that the Chinese authorities believe that anybody who is of ethnic Han Chinese origin should be loyal to the regime in Beijing, that that, you know, regardless of their citizenship. So people who have come to this country, you know, people like Kenny Chiu and Jenny Quan, who you know, left Hong Kong because they they want to seek a a life in a country where there is a freedom of expression and a rule of law, that these people are expected by the regime to always support everything China's doing, whether it's genocide in Xinjiang or, you know, assuming um, taking over territory in the South China Sea or human rights violations, whatever. So they seem to be a special um, focus for Chinese menace harassment and disinformation activities designed to get people who are of ethnic Chinese origin, who are not supportive of the Chinese Communist Party domestically and internationally, out of office. And so this is a particular concern, I think, to all of us. Many of these persons, Canadians of Chinese origin, have family in China that could be subject to menace and harassment and retaliation for what their relatives are doing as elected representatives here in Canada. I think for non-Chinese, the main method to try and get people over is through bribery and, and various forms of 
coercion. So I think our focus has to be on the ethnic Chinese. You know, we are promised by the government a public inquiry into foreign interference, but for some reason, the government has been slow to respond. And I'm really wondering if they're hoping that this matter will just fade away and by fall, people's interest will have turned elsewhere and they won't have to potentially expose Canadian government officials who have been tolerant of this kind of activity by agents of the Chinese regime. I don't disagree. There are probably some people in the government that do feel that way. But uh, based on, on on your work on this, though, Doctor, that's not going to happen, is it? I mean, this, this issue is not going to go away. Well, it's certainly not going to go away for me because I, I think it's outrageous that Canadians should be subject to menace and harassment and coercion by agents of a foreign power. And, you know, we ought to be investigating this matter and expelling the very large number of agents of the Chinese regime who are dedicated to, to furthering China's interests in this way. You know, we've only expelled one Chinese diplomat the one that was outed by the Globe and Mail as being instrumental in trying to find out information about the conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong's family in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But we have evidence in Parliament that the total number of Chinese diplomats who are engaged in these kind of non-diplomatic activities could be as many as 100 of the 176 um, Chinese diplomats accredited to Canada. So, you know, it's time to to get on top of this and protect our, our Canadians of Chinese origin and particularly those who have decided that they want to, you know, run in political campaigns and become representatives of their constituencies uh, in different parts of Canada. Most of their constituents, of course, not being of ethnic Chinese origin, they shouldn't be prevented from representing Canadian people. Chinese Canadians should enjoy the same kind of protections as Canadians of any other ethnicity. We've talked about uh, the dissemination of disinformation uh, uh, that seems to be at least one of the tools that they use when it comes to some of their political interference. But how do they hold sway over some of the, the as you say, the new Canadians uh, of Chinese origin? Uh, my my understanding is that they, they do have a, a large, large control over the, the, the press here, the Chinese press, uh, which I guess a lot of new Canadians would, would actually kind of lean towards because they're not maybe as fluent or as, as adept at, at reading English, etc. So they stick with their home now's paper. That's, a, that's an easy tool, an easy vessel for them to start spreading misinformation, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, of course, a lot of it is... Um you know, digital websites and the yeah. Chinese uh, WeChat, which is the kind of universal tool that people in Canada have to use to communicate with family in China that um, is controlled by Beijing. And so, in other words, if I put something up on WeChat that's critical of the Chinese regime, it's going to vanish. But if they put up this kind of disinformation, such as they did against the, the uh, former member for Stevenson, Richmond, Kenny Chu, you know, there's no way to to get it down or to or to challenge it because so many people inside Canada recently arrived from China who prefer to read their news in the Chinese language and prefer the kind of of language and and style that comes out of mainland China, which is where they came from. Uh, don't look at other sources of information. So, you know, when Mr. Chu was slandered, very badly slandered by disinformation and WeChat, 
exactly simultaneous with polls showing that the Conservatives might achieve a minority government in the next election, he had no means to answer. We couldn't identify who was doing the slander so that they could be called to account or respond. And when he tried to defend himself on other um, media, the people that were reading the WeChat weren't aware of this because all they read is the is the stuff that's controlled by Beijing. So, you know, this is a, a very serious issue in terms of the Chinese government trying to separate a portion of our Canadian population and make them loyal to China and not loyal to the values of Canada that they are living in. The Kenny Chu situation, I guess, is really a, a kind of a glaring example, isn't it, Doctor, of, of the, the power that they can sway and act over this. I mean, this is a guy who was already elected, but he won by a wide, wide margin uh, the first time he was elected. Everybody thought it's a given that he's going to get reelected, and he thought so, too, during the campaign, and then all of a sudden things turned almost overnight. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was terrible, and I... I um was contacted by Mr. Chu, as many others were, trying to figure out who was putting out this disinformation, saying that his um, private member's bill for foreign influence registry would require that all Chinese people report every contact they have with mainland China and so on. I mean, it was just suggesting that we'd be returning to the Chinese Exclusion Act or internment such as happened to the Japanese. And people, you know, people believe what they what they read in these sources. And it was just, you know, complete disinformation that resulted in in Mr. Chu losing a lot of support that likely meant that he ceased to become a member of parliament and people voted for somebody else. So, you know, it was it was awful. Um and there's been no real um, consequences or investigation of what happened. And so I imagine that the Chinese regime um, will probably do a lot more of this in the next election unless we get our act together and and uh, get rid of those people that are behind this and, and uh, prevent uh, this kind of disinformation from going unanswered. I mean, of course, there's nothing wrong with with people having different opinions about politics, but if it's coming from a foreign regime and you can't identify who is articulating this slander, that is a problem for us in our democratic institutions. It may sound like an obvious question, but what what options are open to, uh, for instance, law enforcement agencies? Uh, there's a debate uh, I've seen anyway in some social media circles where they're suggesting, well, it's unethical, but it's not really illegal. Uh, I think there's an argument to be made that maybe it is because of the slander that's involved in situations like that. But I, I get a little frustrated, though, when I find out how, for instance, the RCMP were dealing with the story about the uh, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, police stations in Montreal. And, and the, the, their, their strategy seemed to be, well, we'll park a cruiser in front of there and, and, t- and intimidate them. Uh, that that seemed to be the extent of it. There's, there's certainly got to be more tools in their in their, their their bag to be able to handle these sorts of things, isn't there? Well, I mean, you know, these police stations who are engaged in illegal activity, including the coordination of Chinese police entering our country under false visa status to try and intimidate persons who are in Canada, the Chinese regime would like to see back in China to face Chinese justice or really non-justice. Um, uh, you know, they, they uh, situate themselves into these, what we call astroturf organizations. These are fake um, civil 
society organizations that in fact are controlled by the United Front Work Department of the Chinese Communist Party. We know from the Globe and Mail's uh, reporting on secret documents that were released to the media that there are 194 of these in Canada. So if you park your police cruiser in front of one of the headquarters of one of these associations where this kind of illegal activity is going on, you can be sure that they will simply relocate somewhere else the next day. So the police car parked in front of the of the organization is clearly not solving it. And the fact that we have not brought a single person to court to be made accountable for this kind of activity is indicative of how ineffective our response has been. The, uh, the easy way, I guess, to deal with this is uh, if, if you are a Chinese national, uh, you can be deported. Uh, if you are a Canadian citizen, my understanding is that you can be charged if, uh, if the, in fact, the, there's considered to be a breach of law here. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, there clearly there are violations of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. You cannot menace and harass people without being made accountable. And I think that it's probably incumbent on the government, once we have the public inquiry, if that ever happens, to try and strengthen our, our laws so that this kind of activity can be put to an end. I mean, certainly, yeah, you know, Chinese, as you say, if they're not citizens, they can be deported. If they're diplomats, they can be declared persona non grata, as what happened with Zhao Wei, the agent of the Ministry of State Security, who was, you know, um, masquerading as a diplomat. And uh, and if they're Canadians, they, they should be brought before a court of law and given an opportunity to defend themselves in our system of due process of law, which is a system that does not account to Canadians who are arrested in China, such as Michael Kovrick, Michael's Favor, Hussein Jalil, Kevin Glard, and so on, who've been subject to Chinese prison hell with no ability to defend themselves against false charges. Are you confident that there will be an inquiry to try to at least get the ball rolling on that? I think that, you know, I mean, I think that we remember when the government promised electoral reform and then you know, dumped the idea based on the fact there was no consensus on it, we might see a similar sort of tactic taken that the Liberals would say, well, we can't get agreement from the Conservatives, so we can't proceed. Or they would try and come up with a public inquiry that would look credible to try and satisfy, you know, the concerns of Canadians like you and me, but in fact would give sufficient wriggle room that people who um, you, you know, may be beholden to the Chinese regime, will not be made accountable, and we won't see the kind of arrests and and um, and uh, and um, uh, sanction against people who are acting against uh, Canada on behalf of a foreign government. Notwithstanding the fact that some of the loudest voices crying out for this sort of inquiry and for justice here are people in the Chinese community who are being harassed. Absolutely. And they don't, you know, they don't want to be associated with the Chinese communist regime. And so they would like this to be dealt with so that so that that takes the shadow off them and stops the regime from from being freely able to menace and harass them in their daily lives. And, you know, I, I, I think it's really high time that we took this much more seriously. Chinese Canadians deserve the protection of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms the same as anybody else in Canada. Well, uh, we certainly would continue to have these conversations, and uh, we tend to want to hold our public officials to account for this, so hopefully that's going to have some sway. Uh, as always, Doctor, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate our conversation. It's great to speak with you. I hope we can keep the, keep the volume up on this and hopefully make the government accountable.
Exactly. Thanks again, sir. Dr. Take Charles care. Burton, a senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, uh, and and something the government's going to have to deal with. I, I I don't think anybody's publicly said we hope this thing goes away because it's not going to. I mean, times an election, that's the first thing they asked. Right? Even the by elections, they're asking, well, was there foreign interference? Well, we're not sure. Uh, which only screams that maybe something needs to be done about this. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For those that are uh, having problems with uh, Doug Ford's uh, flip-flop on the green belt, uh, with building uh, Highway 413, a long list of stuff here that uh, has been rather contentious. You can barely wait for the next provincial election, right? Well, it's it's going to be a wait, okay? It's a majority government. they got a long, long way to go. But hope springs eternal. The Liberals, of course, are going to be selecting a new leader later on this year. And uh, I, I know that's it's kind of a long shot to suggest that they could actually topple the Ford government, but stranger things have happened in politics. Let's uh, bring in Sabrina Nanji to talk about this. Sabrina, of course, is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer. Sabrina, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for this today. Yeah, hi, Bill. Happy Monday. And to you, too. I want to ask you specifically about the Liberal leadership. Uh, there are five candidates, a couple of MPPs, uh, two MPs, and, of course, uh, a prominent mayor, Bonnie Crombie, of course, from Mississauga. You've talked to these candidates, uh, and I know there's always a little bit of political hyperbole with this. Oh, yeah, we're going to win. We're going to you know, change the world. But I, I get the sense from some of the comments I've seen from all of them that they think they've got a real shot to not just win the Liberal leadership, but to win the next election. What, what, what was your sense? Yeah, I mean, you you said it best. I think stranger things have happened. Uh, a lot of them are looking at what Justin Trudeau did federally when he brought the federal liberals um, from third place to government. And, and they're thinking this is their best shot. Um, obviously, you know, voters will have the, their say about it in, in 2026. But uh, the fact is, you know, it's undeniable that the Liberals have been gaining a lot of headlines. There's, it's sort of like, it feels like this, um, you know, soul-searching moment for this party that has been absolutely decimated in the last two general elections, you know, being reduced to just seven seats, um, not having recognized party status in the legislature. And yet here we are, um, us reporters, uh, us us talking about it on the radio um and that's more than the actual official opposition ndp can say uh because there's a huge contrast obviously in what uh in in the leadership contests right like the, the, for the liberals there are five people running um you know they're fundraising like crazy uh the latest numbers i heard from from mississauga mayor bonnie crombie's team actually is that she's already raised over half a million dollars uh, of course, that's, you know, their internal numbers are uh, a little more than what's publicly posted on Elections Ontario, but the cost of entry is $100,000. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a steep, it's a steep price. So there's a lot of fundraising happening, which parties rely on for general elections and to be able to run a good campaign, advertising, tourists, all that stuff. Um, they're also having this uh, big policy debate, too, about, you know, where, where the the party stands on certain issues, we know another front runner, Nate Erskine Smith, has said that he wants to take the party left. He's accused Crombie of moving too far to the right, and so I think that this is a this is a big moment and a big chance for the Liberals, and and they do have a, a much better shot. Um, they're also grabbing more headlines than, of course, the NDP could because their leadership contest was, um, you know, relatively speaking, a, a bit of a snooze fest because it was uncontested. Marit Styles just sort of, uh, you know, took the crown there um, and was acclaimed. But certainly, you know, if you talk to the Liberals, they are feeling this sense of renewal. They think that they're the best shot um, at at defeating Doug Ford and the Conservatives in 2026. I, I think that they could, you know, depending on who takes this leadership 
which we'll find out December 2nd, um, that, that they could, you know, maybe get up to a, official opposition at least. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, even the conservatives are shaking in their boots a little bit, especially when it comes to someone like um, Bonnie Crombie, who, who you and I have talked about before, yeah. um, being a big contender in this race for a lot of reasons. Is, is it the quality of the candidates, really, Sabrina, that, that maybe has, has put a little juice behind this whole thing? I mean, you've got Bonnie Crombie, who's a veteran, of course, of, of politics and, and been the mayor of Mississauga for a while now. Uh, you've got uh, you've got two lawyers here, both with political experience. You've got a physicist. You've got a doctor. Uh, it just seems as if they've, they've kind of upped their game a little bit. And I don't know if it's going to pay off, but it seems to be almost a, a different kind of candidate that's running for this leadership. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the liberals were choosing a leader um, in, in Stephen Del Duca, who's now the mayor of Vaughn, of course. But that one, uh, you know, was was a bit of a quieter race because it wasn't as you know high profile people. You're right. You've got two MPs, Nate Erskine-Smith, Yasser Nakvi, um, two sitting MPPs, Ted Shu and Adele Shamji, and then, you know, a big profile, high profile mayor, Bonnie Crombie in this race. I think what's also um, generating a lot of buzz, and it might be inside baseball, but certainly, you know, Queen's Park circles are very excited about it, and, and especially the Liberals, is that this race is a different style. So, you know, the Ontario Liberal Party has finally um, scrapped their, you know, antiquated system and joined the rest of political parties in the country by getting rid of their delegated convention, which, um, you know, I'll say in my view was more entertaining, but a lot of people have argued <laughs> was less democratic. And so they've switched to one member, one vote, which means exactly what it sounds like. If you're a Liberal Party member by the cutoff, date, you get a say and you get a vote in who the next leader of the party is going to be. And so it, it really comes down to like a numbers game here. Um, and, you know, who can sign up the most memberships? We talked a little bit about fundraising and how all these candidates have been raising a lot of money for their campaign, also for the party. Um, but at the end of the day, it's going to come down to how many people can you get on your team, get get to, you know, vote for you at the end of November uh, with the results coming on December 2nd. And so it, right now it feels like it could be anybody's game. Um, obviously, you know, there's a lot of buzz about every candidate because of who they are, but also it, it feels like um, there's this renewed sense that everyone sort of has in the party has a, has a say in who the leader will be, which was not always the case. Yeah, and I know that they're looking at what's going on right now with uh, green belt legislation, the Highway 413, and, and a few other things, patronage appointments. Uh, but you know, I, I, you got to remember, I guess, and I think you and I talked about this uh, back before the last provincial election. I mean, uh, Doug Ford was was pretty much expected to be you know a political dead man walking because of the way I think the pandemic went, and he is terribly low in in the in the uh, the popularity polls. Uh, but look what happened as a result of that. So I I, I don't know, but is 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 as you've noticed with your political experience covering this for so many years, is there a breaking point where some of the stuff does finally start to stick to the politician, like like the green belt flip flop, uh, that people will remember this, especially if they drive by an area that used to be the green belt and there's a housing development up there where they go to vote in 2026? Yeah, you know, I mean, the premier does seem to have this political Teflon um, where he's not really wearing, you know, some of the scandals, uh, at least in terms of general elections. But 2026 is a long ways away. Um, and I do think that when it comes to the Greenbelt, um, you know, it it's, it's complicated, but there's also... 
um, you know, the opposition has been hitting them hard against this, but I do think Doug Ford's defense, I mean, regardless of how you feel on the green belt, him always pivoting to housing really helps um, his case, at least in the public's view. What could derail this this whole thing, um, especially when it comes to the green belt, is that we have two, two watchdogs, the independent watchdogs of the legislature looking into this. That's the Auditor General. Bonnie Lissick and uh, the ethics watchdog, uh, J. David Wake. And so these reports, we don't really have a timeline on it. Um, these watchdogs, in my view, you know, don't necessarily have the sharpest teeth uh, when it comes to what they can actually do, but certainly they have a lot more access to documents, what's going on behind the scenes. Um, you know, the premier might not be happy about the auditor general in particular looking into this. I think he said that she needs to stay in her lane and stick to her scope. And this goes beyond um, her value for money mandate. But obviously there is some value in the green belt. There's definitely much more value in it now that it's being opened up to development. And so, uh, you know, I, I think as a reporter, especially, um, I think the public deserves to know how these decisions are being made. And the premier might not like it, but he has, you know, said that he's cooperating with this process. And so I think that that could potentially, you know, knock him off his pedestal a little bit. I also think that um, this uh, King's Council controversy where, uh, uh, you know, well-deserving lawyers, but also some uh, progressive conservative insiders and staffers even got this uh, designation that was actually scrapped by the then liberal premier because it was just seen as a way to give out patronage appointments. I think that's something we're going to hear a lot about from the opposition too. So, uh, you know, the, the premier has won two whopping majorities. Um, don't even get me started on voter turnout being, being low, <laughs> but I think that some of that is, uh, some of this honeymoon, if you want to call it that, could start to wear thin the closer we get to 2026. And especially he's been benefiting from a weakened opposition. So I yeah. think now that we will have, you know, uh, a renewed liberal party, as the liberals are seeing it, that, that they could certainly give Ford a, a run for his money. Yeah, all those King's Council appointments. What coincidence? They were all conservatives, too. Anyway, that's all, all, all kinds of uh, coincidences in politics. Sabrina, as always, we'll be watching for your reporting on this. Thanks so much for this today. Thanks for having me. Take care. Sabrina Nanji, publisher of Queen's Park Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Things are heating up in the U.S. political races these days, of course. Uh, the primary season is just a few months away, really, and it just kind of whisks by. And the first of the uh, the candidate debates uh, is going to be coming up pretty soon as well. And, uh, by the way, former U.S. President uh, and now twice indicted, Donald Trump uh, spoke this past weekend. He's been on the road a lot lately. He was at something called the Turning Point Action Convention in West Palm Beach, Florida, and a gathering of thousands of young conservatives. And uh, Trump, well, what does Trump usually do? He talked about how great Trump is. To stop the destruction of our national wealth, I will impose a border tariff on all foreign-made goods, everything coming into our country. They're ripping our country, and we're not going to let we want our products made in American factories by American workers in Florida and other states. Uh, play into the crowd, uh, and Trump is still a factor as they head through these presidential primaries, uh, which will be coming up pretty soon. Joining us to talk about this and uh, lots more things American, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, great to have you with us. Thanks for the time today. Good morning. I know there are some people that that are still dismissive of Trump. You know, the, 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 the trial might actually be happening around the same time as the primaries. We're not sure of the timing of that just yet. 
but and there's no way they're going to you know elect a guy or give the guy the nomination if he's twice indicted as Trump is all these days. But he's still sucking up a lot of oxygen, and uh, he's still leading when it comes to fundraising, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, Donald Trump, uh, classic Donald Trump in that clip that you played, uh, you know, it extended on for, for you know, dozens of minutes here of talking about how kind of dark and gloomy the picture is for America. He's been talking like this since 2016, but it doesn't appear to be turning people off. People see the United States still in the same eyes that Donald Trump uh, sees uh, the United States, uh, and it's working for him. He is a fundraising machine. The second quarter uh, numbers were released over the weekend, and he's still dominating the Republican pack, bringing in roughly $35 million uh, in fundraising, far above second place uh, uh, kind of in the race right now, Ron DeSantis, who, you know, his fundraising totals are signaling alarm bells, and he's he's kind of in his own um, kind of campaign crisis at the moment. But the fact that Trump is still bringing in such hefty amounts of money, including, you know, dollars that even out-fundraised Joe Biden, uh, he is going to be a force to be reckoned with uh, amongst Republicans, whether he's on the debate stage or not, whether he is dealing with, um, you know, trials and tribulations of his past life. Um, he, he is still the person to beat and he is going strong. And, you know, he peaked early and that peak is continuing. Talk to us about the trial. And, and again, Jack Smith, the, the special prosecutor, is being rather secretive about exactly what's going to be happening next year. Uh, but, but were Trump's lawyers actually trying to delay this thing till past the, 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 the primaries and the election? Or is it just a uh, what, what, what's their strategy here, Reg? So look, we'll find out this week, possibly tomorrow, uh, whether or not there's going to be a grant given to um, uh, the former president on on when it comes to delays, because the first hearing uh, is actually scheduled for tomorrow, dealing with how each side is going to handle um, classified material. Uh, and that plays into what the Trump team is actually trying here, uh, is to delay this not only beyond the December date that special counsel Jack Smith wants, they want to delay this way into next year and to beyond the 2024 election. Number one, if Trump were to win, he could, you know, install a new department, uh, a, a new attorney general and end all of the investigations into him. Uh, number two, he may be immune to any kind of investigation because he'd be president. Beyond that, the legal strategy here in his team's eyes uh, is that they don't have enough time. They haven't had enough time to go through classified materials, given the vast quantities of them. But at the same time, members of his own team still don't even have their forms submitted to be able to. Uh, gain access to these sensitive government documents. So, I mean, they're kind of slow walking the process on their own here. And the special counsel is calling it hogwash, saying, look, December is plenty of time to get your ducks in a row and to start looking at the information that we collected from uh, your residents and to get your legal team prepared here. Obviously, this is in the hands of this Trump appointed judge. And we're all waiting to see whether or not she gives Donald Trump what he's looking for or whether she fast tracks it like the court is known to do. Well, and I guess he played his role on Sunday when he was on Fox News talking about what a wonderful judge and a great American she is. I, I don't know if that kind of talk is actually going to sway her one way or the other. Uh, but does the whole thing hinge on, on what happens here? I mean, if, if in fact she decides, yeah, we're going to cut this guy some slack, does, does Jack Smith have any recourse at all? I mean, he can do whatever he can to try and push back on this judge. Uh, I mean, look, ultimately, her reputation and the court's reputation uh, would be caught up in any kind of favoritism towards one person, regardless of whether they are the ones who, um, 
you know, appointed her or not. Look, there's been conversation here that maybe Jack Smith will ultimately try to bring out secondary charges in a different venue, maybe somewhere like New Jersey, because some documents were found um, at the Bedminster golf course. And that could allow for kind of parallel investigations where one is taking place in Florida under delay and the second one maybe with a potentially less friendly Trump judge in New Jersey. Those are all speculations, of course. And the Department of Justice is ultimately saying, look, we have a case here. We have a strong case. uh, And we do not want this delayed beyond the fact that we're now choosing to ask for a date, you know, four months beyond what we thought was going to be the original start date. So Department of Justice says, let's get going on this. Trump's team says, no, that'll distract from him being able to be on the campaign. We need to delay it. Uh, let's look at the rest of the pack. Ron DeSantis, as, as you've been reporting, uh, is still having his problems, uh, not raising anywhere near the kind of money that they thought. But I think probably more important, Reggie, he's not closing the gap with Trump, is he? He's not closing the gap. I mean, look, his his numbers are actually starting to recede a bit, even though he's he's he raised you know twenty some odd million dollars in the second quarter. That's not nickels and dimes. The issue is that well, we say Donald Trump peaked early unsurprisingly, and that peak continues. Ron DeSantis also peaked early and as expected or as kind of forecasted by some of the political pundits, uh, that flame is starting to flicker here. It's a big number that he brought in uh, fundraising wise, but uh, a lot of that came from donors that are now maxed out and cannot give any more money to Ron DeSantis. And that's going to make it much more difficult in the months to come to be able to find more of these people to donate either small amounts or that max amount, which is around $3,100 for just the average um, individual. Uh, it, it appears that you know whatever he was trying to do isn't really working in his favor. And look, he, he talked over the weekend about how he doesn't want to get into the insult game with the former president. It's working. For Donald Trump, even as DeSantis tries to pitch himself as kind of alternative to Trump, even further right than Trump or Trump light or Trump heavy, he's having problems sustaining any kind of support underneath him. And he's he's set to kind of walk through this 99 county Iowa journey in the next couple of weeks. But that's going to be difficult because he's now shedding staff. He's burning through so much money that he's bringing in. He doesn't have the money to keep his campaign where it needs to be. So he is in trouble weeks before uh, this first debate in August. Well, let's talk about the home base there. Even within Florida Republicans, uh, he was their guy, obviously. He was the governor, and, and they, they rallied behind him, at least in that state, too. Is even that starting to wane? Because I'm hearing some rumblings that uh, that Tim Scott is actually starting to make a move uh, towards DeSantis. I don't think he's ever going to catch Trump, uh, but he might just be a plan B for some Republicans in Florida. Sure, absolutely. And look, when you're the second place, uh, you know, far behind the first place, everyone else is trying to catch up to second, knowing that first might be simply too far to get to. And then it makes it a far easier race when there are only two or when you've made it into second place. And Tim Scott is doing well. He is um, exceeding expectations when it comes to money that's coming in. It's you know far less than Trump or DeSantis, but it is still more uh, than people like Chris Christie or even Nikki Haley from South Carolina, like Tim Scott. Uh, and in Florida, uh, I mean, look, DeSantis is 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 struggling. He doesn't have the kind of support that he needs, even though, you know, he had the support to elevate him to this, uh, to the position of governor. Um, he's now fully reliant here on super PACs to be able to go out and do kind of the grunt work for him. The problem being in the United States, a super PAC um, they can't have any connection or they can't have any uh, direction given by the campaign. So he's reliant on these people that he can't actually deal with to go out and do the campaigning for him, hoping that it works for him. 
they're bringing in a lot of money, but it can be a dangerous thing to have to rely on an outside group that you actually can't control. Uh, on the other side of the fence, uh, what is going on with, with RFK Jr., Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr., of course, uh, Bobby Kennedy's uh, son? Uh, he's a Democrat, or so he says anyway, but talk about try out Trump Trump. I mean, some of the stuff this guy's responsible for, he's he's a conspiracy theorist, a, an anti-vaxxer. He's uh, got himself in hot water now with the Jewish community for some of his remarks. Yeah. I mean, look, over the weekend, uh, there was tape, or, or at least in the last few days, there was tape released from a quote-unquote off-the-record conversation with the New York Post. And in it, he's talking about how how COVID um, was was created, or the, the, the virus was created to target, um, you know, Caucasians and Black people, and that people who are immune are Ashkenazi Jews and, and the Chinese. And he's trying to walk back saying, look, I didn't say that, even though those words are spoken on tape and the New York Post is saying, look, we stand by our reporting. We were sitting by him and you can hear him talking. But this is all part and parcel to what he kind of has been going on about. Look, just, you know, it's been within the last few weeks that RFK Jr. has been talking about how chemicals in water can alter the sexuality of children or can make children uh, transgender. Uh, you know, th this plays far beyond where where Democrats are uh, on the kind of political and social spectrum here. And, you know, the questions are raised. Is he actually kind of playing up to Republicans, hoping that he can pull Republicans away from Trump and maybe become this kind of third party slash still a Democrat, but kind of a Republican in hiding? Um, it's working a little bit, Bill. I mean, look, his numbers, according to some polls, depending on, you know, who's being talked to, his numbers are in and around 20 percent. That's that's far higher than we're seeing for some people on the Republican side that are way below uh, uh, Ron DeSantis. So, I mean, it's concerning here for Democrats. It's not as concerning yet for Joe Biden because he still has such a substantial lead here. Uh, but but the comments that RFK Jr. makes, I mean, it, it's they're wild and they're concerning. Uh, and, and Democrats really want to try and distance themselves from him. Speaking of uh, assets and liabilities, uh, I remember the story that you brought to us. It was probably six, eight months ago now uh, that a lot of Democratic insiders were very concerned about Kamala Harris and the role that she was going to play in this upcoming election, uh, even to the point of almost considering her to be a liability to Biden. Uh, now that seems to have turned around. The attitude seems to have turned around. Uh, she's still not really drawing popular numbers, but how did they see her in this election? I assume uh, that she's going to be Biden's running mate again. I think Biden kind of referenced, referenced that the other day, didn't he? Yeah, he hasn't made any kind of uh, uh, you know strong comments here that he intends to drop Kamala Harris from the ticket, and it could be problematic for him, um, you know, given that a change in this or, or dropping somebody who's the first woman, the first woman of color to hold the office of a, a vice president, it could work against him. Uh, look, Kamala Harris's approval numbers are still nothing to write home about. I believe she's in and around uh, a fifty-two percent disapproval uh, rating. Uh, you know, she's had a difficult climb here for the last few years. She's been handed a, a series of difficult um, kind of legislative agendas up to and including having to deal with the immigration crisis at the southern border. But the vice president is always in a difficult position. They do not want to stand on a higher pedestal than the president is at uh, because it may make the president look weak. So she you know, finds herself in a position of having to tread waters very carefully here. There's also a reality here, Bill, um, that she is a woman and she is a woman of color. And there are still people in this country that are that are trying to reckon with that. And that is also working against her. But Democrats say, look, she's young. Uh, she is smart. She worked as an attorney general. She worked as uh, as a senator. She understands what to do. And given the fact that Joe Biden's biggest kind of obstacle that he won't be able to overcome is his age, 
the fact that she is younger, that she is uh, very politically astute, uh, this could be where Democrats try to say, look, uh, should something happen, she is the person that we want in charge here. Her numbers don't reflect that, but Democrats are ultimately trying to not make Joe Biden also look weak by saying this is a strong ticket. She is the person that should go forward. Got a minute or so left here. I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that uh, we're heading towards the debate season uh, with these candidates. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen with the Democrats. Joe Manchin's still thinking that he's making a run. He hasn't said no anyway. Uh, but Trump, I just heard over the weekend, is probably not even going to show up, at least for the first debate anyway. Is he, is he evading this? He, he's talking about how he may not uh, show up to the debate, saying, look, Ronald Reagan didn't show up to the debate. And at the same time, he kind of did this by saying, well, look, Joe Biden shouldn't have the debate because he's doing so well. What does he need to go up and stand with RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson for? giving himself a little bit of an avenue to walk down to say, look, I don't think Biden should do it. I don't think I should do it. He says his numbers are too high. Those trying to replace him are critical of it, saying, look, stand on stage and debate us. Let us ask you questions of things that you failed to achieve during your presidency. It's unclear if he's going to do it. Chris Christie on the Sunday shows uh, uh, yesterday made a point of saying, look, I don't buy it, that he's not going to show up. He's not going to want to have a TV show that doesn't have him a part of it. We'll have to see what he's going to do. There are talks he may hold a competing event, but without Trump on that stage and you have the kind of second and third tier candidates, you get an idea to what their platforms are going to be. You just won't have that bombast and you may actually get a, a almost proper debate without having a, the kind of vicious attacks on stage. But, you know, it's in Trump's hand. We have to wait and see. Well, it's going to be a busy week down in uh, the U.S. Capitol. And of course, we'll be waiting for that court decision uh, from Florida as well and watching for your reporting on Global National. Reggie, as always, thanks for this today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent uh, for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.